Well, it's my joy to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Zach. I've been a member here for the past year or so, and it's a pleasure to see you all. We've been going through the book of Mark the last few months, and we've been asking a question, who is Jesus? And who is Mark telling us that Jesus is? And Mark gives a very clear answer, but I want to pose the question again to you this morning. Who is Jesus to you? And I believe in these verses we will find the straightforward truth that Jesus is the king who took on suffering so you could be saved. He's the king who took on suffering so you could be saved. And we saw in last week when Jesus had the Last Supper meal with his disciples during the time of Passover, that he told them there was going to be a a great trial that he was going to endure. We know that he's been preparing his disciples for coming to the cross. And now we reach this portion of the gospel called the Passion Narrative. The Passion Narrative is telling of the suffering that Jesus took. And this is what the entire gospel is here for. This is the whole point of the story, is to reach this climax where Jesus' ministry is shown in his suffering on the cross. In fact, some scholars have even commented that the passion narrative of the gospel is so central that everything else is just a long introduction to this singular point. But before we find Jesus approach the cross, first we find these predictions of failure that he makes for his disciples. There's two predictions he makes, one for the entire group of disciples, and then a second, more specifically, for Peter. And we'll see that in the layout of the chapter, where we'll find the fulfillment of his first prediction, where all of the disciples will abandon him. And then you'll find the fulfillment of the second prediction, where Peter will abandon him. And we'll find that next week at the end of the chapter. But first we find this prediction of failure, but we have to set the scene. The setting to any story is very important. And this story starts on the Mount of Olives. There we go. (laughs) Our mind recalls. I'm sorry. There we go. The Mount of Olives. Our mind recalls last week when we had this um, extended story of Jesus telling the disciples that Jerusalem Uh, that the temple was going to be destroyed and they would need to flee from Jerusalem. In fact, all of Mark 13 is filled with allusions to the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah, we have this story of the importance of the shepherd that is a good shepherd for his people. And yet he was going to be struck and the sheep would be scattered. And this image of the sheep being scattered is an imagery of exile of dispersion. And in scripture, particularly if you know the story of the Old Testament, it's very important to know that these historical details that can seem confusing and and complex, the history actually matters immensely because it's telling the story of your own spiritual bondage to sin, your own spiritual captivity. And when the Israelite people are in exile two times, first by the Assyrians in the seventh century, and then a second time by the Babylonians, in the fifth century, we're to be reminded that when we turn away from God and turn to idolatry, we are brought into captivity, taken from what should be our true spiritual home, and scattered. Now, the book of Zechariah was written to the people of Israel coming out of the Babylonian exile. And while some of them were brought back into the land and saw themselves as back in the land, they knew that ultimately they weren't truly out of exile. 
for two reasons. The first is they were still captured in their sins. Their, their rebellion, their idolatry against God hadn't fully been reckoned with. But secondly, we have to remember the previous Assyrian exile, where the Assyrian kingdom came in and it dispersed the people of Israel. You see, there were 10, I'm sorry, there were 12 tribes of Israel. You can see on this very small map that I've given you, I apologize for the colors, but there's this arrangement of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's just these two in the south, Benjamin and Judah, that remain after the Assyrian army comes in. They take the other 10 tribes into exile and captivity, and they're dispersed, they're spread throughout the world. And then Israel is left with this longing for a reunification, for the full 12 tribes of Israel to come back together. And they know that that has not yet happened when Zechariah is telling them of their return from exile from Babylon. And so the hope in the Old Testament, the prophetic hope, is that there would be this return from exile brought about by a Davidic king. That this king would come and raise his people back up. And this is what Jesus is pointing to when he quotes Zechariah, not only 13, but 14 as well. We find the Mount of Olives is where the Lord would put his foot and he will reign. But before the Lord reigns, there is a period of tribulation and there is a period of testing. And so what hope could there be with such a prediction of failure? How would you respond if you had been told that this mentor that you had followed for years knew he was going to be betrayed, knew he was going to be handed over, and knew that you were going to betray him. Well, perhaps you would think, how could this be my fault? I mean, if it's prophecy, if it's divinely ordained, then I can't be to blame for failing. But that's not the way that Jesus responds to his disciples. He doesn't presume that's an option for them. That's not the way Mark sees an option either. And perhaps it would be overwhelming. Now, it shouldn't be overwhelming because along with the prediction of failure, He's also given them a prediction of hope. He's given them a prediction that there will be a return. He will rise and he will come back to them. You see, when he gives this text um, from Zechariah 13.7 in verse 27, it says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He also says, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And when Jesus talks about being raised up, he's referring to these Old Testament promises, again, about the Davidic king being raised up as the shepherd for the people. It says this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. I apologize. Jeremiah 23, 5, you can read it. It talks about the Davidic king being raised up. And so it's important that he's not only raised up as the Davidic king, but he's also raised up in the ministry. He says he will meet them in Galilee. Why is Galilee significant? Well, it's the home of Jesus and the disciples. It's the place where the ministry started. And while Jerusalem was a place of persecution, condemnation, rejection, Galilee was the place of birth. It was the place of beginning. And so he's telling them that even as they all scatter and betray him, he will rise up, come back to them, and they will have a new beginning in the hometown of Galilee. But it's even greater than that because we know the Assyrian exile started in Galilee. 
So this hope that the 12 tribes of Israel would be reconstituted, would be fulfilled, is being realized when Jesus says, you as my 12 disciples will go out and you will be brought back when I am raised up first in Galilee. The time of exile, historically for the people of Israel, is over. And also, that signifies something amazing spiritually for the truth of the new creation that Jesus is bringing. And yet still, even with this message of hope that was given, it was too much. Peter was overwhelmed, and he didn't outright reject what Jesus was saying, but he did this move where he offered a qualification, right? You say, well, not everyone will fall away. Many of the others will, but I will not abandon you. Just like Satan, really, questioning in the garden. Did God really say? Here we find Peter with this skepticism. Is it, is it really true all will fall away? Surely I will not fall away. He's so confident in his own faith that he disregards the explicit words of Jesus, which is ironic considering it's faith in the words of Jesus that we're supposed to have. And yet he's so sure that even Jesus telling him more specifically, giving this prediction about the rooster crowing twice and, G and Peter denying him three times, that does not change his mind. Peter is so emphatic that he will not disown Jesus. He thought of himself as stronger than the others, so he was permitted to fall more, as Thomas Aquinas has said. And then, to add even greater tragedy to this story, the others are inspired by his arrogance and follow after him. It says in the text that they all said the same. So consider the disciples' response. They rightly rejected the idea that forsaking Jesus was something that one should do. They, they were disgusted by the thought of betraying him. And yet they didn't consider their own frailty. They didn't consider their own weakness. And this morning, I want to ask you how you see sin. And not just sin, how you see your own frailty. Are there any sins that you presume are simply too great for you to fall into? Are there temptations that you're so sure you can resist? You've fallen into a foolish confidence. You're not on guard. You're not preparing. We have to beware. We have to be cautious. We have to confront our frailty and our weakness. Listen carefully. I'm not saying that you should go about your life with this anxiety, with this constant fear of future failures, continually doubting, am I walking in the spirit? Am I, am I a true Christian? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are you on guard? Do you have a mentality that is removing anxiety over future failures because you're neglecting prayer? Are you, are you failing to consider the full extent of your frailty, knowing that it's only by turning to Christ in prayer that you're powered to avoid temptation. This is why Jesus says in this same scene in the book of Luke, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And this is why Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And yet he comes in with this assurance as well at the end when he says with the temptation God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I urge you, turn to Christ in prayer daily, trusting that even though your weakness is great, the grace of his strength is greater. Because it's only by Christ that we can avoid falling into temptation and avoid foolish arrogance. This is why Jerome 
the early church father says, that if Christ does not grant us grace, then the Judas in us betrays. If he departs a little way from us, the Peter in us sleeps. So we need to turn to Christ in prayer. Otherwise, we'll fall into the arrogant presumption of the disciples who thought their faith was too great to fail in the time of temptation. These are the future um, predictions of failure that are made. But what does it look like to turn to Christ in prayer? How, how do we know the best way to do that? And that is by seeing how Christ himself prayed. And so we find the perfect prayer. The second point, which is the perfect prayer. First, we have to come to the place. And that is, once again, like before on the Mount of Olives, the setting is essential. We find in verse 32, if you look in the text, they go to a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is the Greek word combined from these two Hebrew words. And it's the two Hebrew words taken for a wine press and for oil. So it means the wine press of oil or an oil press. And we know that Gethsemane was a garden because in the book of John, it tells us in the same scene that they entered into a garden on the side of the Mount of Olives. So it's a garden on the Mount of Olives, and I was speaking to my roommates last night, and they've actually been there. Perhaps some of you have been there before as well. It's a garden full of olive trees. Why is it significant that Jesus goes to this garden? Well, let's think back to the Old Testament. Think about the rich symbolism of the olive in the Old Testament. We know that the olive oil is what anointed every artifact in the temple. And so it gave this sense of consecration, holiness, set apart. The olive oil is what would anoint the king, and it showed that the presence of the Spirit is on this king. God is with him. And as it anointed every artifact in the tabernacle, so that when you walked through the tabernacle, there was this aroma of an olive grove. So too, when you go to the temple, you would find that there was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence with his people. And the door to enter into the Holy of Holies had two massive doors that were made of olive wood. Right beside the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim, these massive angels, standing by, guarding the Ark of the Covenant. They're made of olive wood. And of course, we know the temple itself is full of floral imagery, full of plants and giving this impression of a garden as well. Why does it matter that the tabernacle, the temple, are olive gardens. It's because Jesus is coming here into Gethsemane. He's left the temple that was about to be destroyed. He's coming to the Mount of Olives, where a new creation is going to be declared, and he goes into Gethsemane, the Holy of Holies, and he comes as the high priest, and he comes there to pray. And yet we know how wine is made. The grapes have to be crushed, and so too with olives. They have to be crushed for oil to be poured out. And the Lord Jesus was so full of the Spirit. And yet the way the Spirit is poured into us, the way we receive the Holy Spirit, is by him being trampled and pressed. It's by him being wrung out. Not that he would lose the Spirit, but so that it would pour out of him and we could be filled by it. The grief that would happen on Calvary, the sufferings that he was about to experience, had already begun there in the garden of Gethsemane, because God had appointed that it's through suffering and ultimately death that new life, new birth would come. And so this is why we find what we sang in the song earlier today, that Jesus is the better Adam, 
Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher of the last century, once said it very well also. He said, it was in a garden that Adam's self-indulgence ruined us. And so, in another garden, the agonies of the second Adam should restore us. But it's not just Jesus as the second Adam. It's also Jesus as the greater David. Think back to the Old Testament, the story of David, 2 Samuel 15. He was this great king of Israel, and yet he's betrayed by his own son, Absalom. He's betrayed by his own trusted counselor. They have a coup. They take the kingdom from him. And as he's leaving Jerusalem, it says in 2 Samuel 15, he ascends the Mount of Olives, weeping and praying. And yet we know that his kingdom would be restored to him. And so too with Jesus, as he is in the Mount of Olives, weeping and praying as a high priest, we know his prayer is heard. For he was going to bring the restoration of a new and great kingdom. And so this is why Jesus was greatly distressed, greatly troubled. This is why the text says that his soul was sorrowful even unto death. And so we reach the central heart of this passage. How could this be? What, what a wonderful mystery. Just take a moment to ponder. This is the all-powerful, infinite, eternal creator of the universe, above all sorrow and suffering, that stepped into the human condition so that he could say, my soul is sorrowful unto death. That he could face such weakness and pain. And we know the scriptures are clear why he's in this distress, why he's suffering. Because he knows what sin is, even more powerfully than you do. He knows how filthy and dishonoring it is, how disgusting it is to a holy and righteous God. And when he faces it, the sins of the whole world, your sins, my sins. He's in such sorrow and anguish over it, a sorrow that we never experience to the same extent because we don't love God as much as we should. We don't love what is holy and righteous. And Jesus is experiencing this distress, as it says in 1 Peter 2. He himself would bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we could die to sin. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this glorious exchange where we get Christ's righteousness and he gets our sin. And yet, as a man, he had to know the reality of the emotional turmoil, the emotional struggle of how terrible it is to have the sin that ruptures your relationship with God. Not to say that Jesus' relationship was ruptured with God, but that as a human, he experienced the grief and shame over sin. Think about this. The more you love what is good, the more you'll hate what is evil. And the more you're amazed by the beauty of who God is, the more you're disgusted by the wickedness of things that separate you from him. And so Jesus loves God perfectly. How could he not experience such anguish when faced with the idolatry of our sin, when faced with the consequence it results in, not just his physical death, not just the physical pain, although that's true, that as well, but also the shame and humiliation. Think of this infinite God, perfectly blessed and holy, in glory, and yet Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful unto death. This is why it's important to affirm Jesus has a human soul. 
Jesus has the same kind of soul that you do, one that can experience this emotional grief. He's not sorrowful over his own sin. He's perfect. He's sorrowful over our sins and the consequence that it demands. So take this moment as we think about this passage, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider what this tells you about God. Consider what this tells you about the person of Jesus. His great, infinite love for you. How unimaginably greater it is than you can even conceive. The heart of Christ is more full of love for you than it fears pain and shame. The heart of Christ is more full of love for you than your heart is full of sin and misery. And some of you here this morning have experienced betrayal before. A profound betrayal from a a loved one. Take a moment to think of that experience. Maybe it was a friend that you thought you trusted, a sibling, a parent, someone you trusted, a spouse, and they turned away from you and they scorned you, not merely out of neglect, but because they love something else even greater. This person that you gave everything for, and this gut-wrenching feeling, these sleepless nights of realizing that they would rather see you in pain than turn away from this new thing that they love, new, new person. And you're facing these sleepless nights and you're wondering how are you going to have the face to face the next day? And then you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who became lonely, became isolated so that he could say to you, I know what it is to be lonely. I know what it is to be betrayed. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that chose to take on this vulnerability and pain, something we would never choose to take on ourselves. And yet he's there to say that I am with you. And how sweet is that? Think of that the next time you don't know how to get through the night. Jesus had a night like that. And it says in the book of Hebrews, this this beautiful, sweet truth in chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 4, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, the one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when you feel this turmoil, don't turn from God. Even if he seems silent, continue to pray two, three, seven, 77 times, continually knowing that he is there and that he hears you. Even if we are blind and we don't hear him and the night seems long, turn to God and pray just as Jesus did. And Jesus shows us what it is to pray. So here we reach the perfect prayer. Because Jesus prays exactly like he had taught his disciples to pray. He prays the Lord's Prayer. In fact, you can see the comparison quite clearly here. We have Jesus' prayer on the right, where he says, Abba, Father. Just like he tells his disciples to address in Matthew 5 with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. To say Abba isn't like a childish way of saying Daddy. It's an intimate term. It's a familial term, but it's a respectful term. It's something an older son would say to his father. Abba, all things are possible for you. He says, remove this cup from me. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And then he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Just as we're told to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So let's take this step by step. Let's start with remove this cup from me because we've spoken of Abba, Father. Recognizing all things are possible for God. When Jesus says, remove this cup from me, what is the cup? Well, I would submit to you, it's not a cup that he drinks alone. 
We've already mentioned last week that in the Passover meal, there were four cups that they would drink, each symbolizing a different thing. And the fourth cup was the cup of consummation. It was where the Israelites declared, we are brought out of exile, we are brought out of captivity, we are freed. Jesus does not drink that cup. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he drinks of the fruit of the vine on the cross. So the Passover meal is not yet finished. They were singing a hymn as they came out of the Mount of Olives. They're singing the hymn you always sing after the third cup. This hymn um, from Psalm 115. So this cup of the Passover meal is the cup of consummation. It's the end of exile. But we know to come out of exile is tribulation. There's testing. There's adversity. And God gives adversity for there to be new life. And so we find that this cup is something that is part of our discipleship to join with Christ. In Mark 10, Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking to his disciples. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And we may think, no, Jesus, only you can drink that cup. We can't. He says, Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Our goal is to join in the sufferings of Christ be baptized into his death, to participate in his sufferings, to bear our cross, not because it saves us, Jesus saves us, but we want to be conformed and become like him and share his sufferings. This is the cup that we are to drink and that Jesus was to drink, and yet Jesus knew how dreadful it is, the true cost of discipleship. Now, when Jesus says remove this cup, don't think in any sense this is him hesitating or or changing his mind from the mission that he was sent. He was sent to save sinners. The Son of Man has come to be a shepherd to those that need a shepherd, to save the lost. He doesn't get to this point and say, now I'm thinking about not saving the lost. I'm changing my mind. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to do that anymore. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says explicitly in his ministry, in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Then he says, I have authority to take it up. He's perfectly willing to go to the cross. Rather, when he says, remove this cup from me, it's so that we could appreciate the reality that he has a human will. And the human will naturally desires to avoid death. That's a good thing that we're created for self-preservation. It's how we can show love for others as well, that we have this natural desires as we love ourselves, so too we can love others. And every day we know the experience of where something bitter and that you would not want in itself, you still choose to endure for something greater. I remember as a child, I didn't want to tell my mom when I had a sore throat because I could not stand the cherry cough syrup that she would give me. It was my least favorite flavor, I could imagine. That was a cup I did not want to drink. But when my throat got so bad, I would have to admit to her. And I knew it would be far better for me to have the relief of that sore throat than to ignore the cup of adversity, the cup of bitterness that I needed to drink. And for Jesus, of course, the goal is far greater. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And yet that doesn't mean he goes to the cross with a skip in his step. He despises the shame and he wrestles with the pain, knowing what is going to face. And so he says, remove this cup from me. And then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Once again, this is very, very important. We have to distinguish. It's not that 
the Father has a will, and the Son has a will, and the Spirit has a will, and there's these three wills in God, and oh good, they all just happen to be in agreement. But they could be in disagreement, and they just happen to be on the same page. No, the Father, the Son, the Spirit have one will. There's one God. Jesus is not just divine, he's also human, which means he has a human will. And it's this human will that Jesus is saying, not my will, but your will be done. Why do we have to make that distinction? Why does it matter that we say this is Jesus' human will? It's because Jesus took on a human body that your body can be resurrected. It's because Jesus took on a human soul that your soul can be freed. And it's only if Jesus really has a human will that your human will can be saved from bondage and captivity to sin. This is why this is so beautiful. And this is why Jesus shows exactly what Christian discipleship looks like. It's for every Christian in prayer to come to God and say, not my will, but your will be done. So that as a human, the divine is brought together and we are in harmony and we are in submission and we are in union with God. And so my application to you is this. Follow after Jesus' prayer. Pray humbly and pray fervently. When I say pray humbly, I mean, are your prayers filled with these requests and supplications constantly asking God for this and that, and then forgetting that key part, not my will, but your will be done. Are your prayers even filled with requests that you would be able to resist the flesh, resist the desires, the weakness of the body? Ask yourself, how much does the weakness of the body shape how you pray, how often you pray, and your attitude towards prayer? Prayer is about surrender. It's about transformation. We take in the words of God, we meditate on them, And then we pray back and we use the words of God we just took in. Just like we did with Psalm 23 this morning. It was a beautiful example. This is how we pray. How Jesus taught us to pray. Using the words of God to repeat back to him. And so this is how we know that Jesus' prayer was answered. Hebrews 5 refers to the same passage. And it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cheers and cries to him who was able to save him from death. And we know he was heard because of his reverence. And so I ask you, do you have this precious balance between praying honestly, lamenting as the Psalms describe, praying earnestly yet without complaining? Do you have this ability to have an honest expression of your anguish yet not give room for resentment, which would prevent respect? This is the kind of balance we need to strive for. That's what it is to pray humbly. And then as we pray fervently, we consider the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who, of course, were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they were also on the Mountain of Transfiguration when they saw Jesus gloriously transformed. They were speechless then. They didn't know what to say, and they're speechless and confused here because whether it's Jesus in glory or Jesus in anguish, the disciples do not understand. It's confusing to them. And we find that their response depicts our response to sin, which is that we sleep. Our spirits are lethargic and lazy. We know what's wrong, but we don't grieve over the severity of its cost. We don't see the weight of sin like they do. And so for anyone here today that is comfortable with their life of not turning to God in prayer, that is quite satisfied with their condition, thinking God is optional, I I turn to you and I, I beg you to wake up, see the severity of what it is to not live a life saying to God, not your will, not my will, but your will be 
be done. The devil is prowling like a lion. He's seeking to devour you. He's seeking to consume your soul. Wake up, I urge you, for the sake of your health. And for those of you that are in Christ, and you don't pray fervently, you don't pray eagerly and continually, I say what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. There is an urgency that needs to be in our prayer. Think of how Christ himself prayed that we would become children of God, and his prayer was heard. Parents, how often do you pray for your children that they would grow up and be children of God, that they would stay in the ways of God that you have trained them, that they would stay in the church, stay in the kingdom of God? Pray for them daily. Children, how often do you pray for your parents that they would remain faithful to the ways that they've taught you or that God would call them to salvation? How often do you pray for your neighbor, pray for your enemy? There is so much we can be praying for. There's no time to sleep. And so we find in our last point that we reach the point where there's this fear of persecution. Not that Jesus has a fear of persecution, but ultimately the disciples reach a point where Jesus accepts, he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, so rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And as we reach this final section in verse 43, we find the setting isn't as important as the cast of characters. The story has changed. Now we find Judas coming in. And as was mentioned, Judas is one of the 12, which highlights the real sting of his betrayal. And he's given a special name here. It's not a name you would ever want to be called by. It's the betrayer. And just like his father, the devil, who's called the accuser, he wraps his sign of good intention in deceit. A kiss and a greeting. A double honor. He calls Jesus rabbi, and then he gives him a kiss. What's even more remarkable than Judas's betrayal, which we're not going to focus on, is the way Jesus accepts it. Jesus is embraced. Jesus does not turn away. He knows that the betrayer is coming, and he accepts it. He doesn't fear persecution. The men with swords would have no power to lay hands on him if Jesus didn't willingly go with them. And Jesus went to a place that he knew they would know he would be. It says in Luke, he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. There's no surprise that he would be there. In fact, in Mark earlier, he knew they wanted to bring him into captivity, but they couldn't arrest him because they feared the people. They feared the crowd. So Jesus goes to a quiet place where there's no crowd. He makes it easier for them to arrest him because he has accepted, his, he's accepted the will of the Father to go to the cross. And then they lay hands on him, which is like, all throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is the one laying hands on people to bless them, to heal them, to bring life, to bring good. And they lay hands on him to seize him and bring him into captivity. This is why when Jesus says, if you look in verse 48, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Like, you're coming at me like I'm a robber. You're the robber. You have no right. You have no authority. I've done nothing wrong. But you're coming to capture me. Because you fear me. You fear what I can do. You fear the message that I bring. And for the disciples, they're confused. I mean, they are at this point where they've been sleeping, and then they don't know what to say, and then one of them's like, I have to take out the sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear because that will help somehow. I'll use violence to bring in the will of God. They're totally off page. 
Now, Mark is getting this story from Peter. Mark wasn't there. He heard from Peter these accounts. And then I'm sure Peter told Mark, yeah, it was uh, one of the disciples that cut off the servant's ear. John tells us, no, it was Peter. Like, we know who did it. <laughs> um, but perhaps Mark is trying to keep Peter from that embarrassment. In any case, there's this confusion, and then they ultimately flee because they can't, they can't handle this kind of surrender to see Jesus surrender over to persecution. And then it really climaxes, not just in it saying they all left him and fled, but this strange story that only shows up in Mark, which is of this young man that was following them and then had nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And so they seized him. Now, who's this young man? A lot of people have said, well, it's got to be Mark, and he's just making it anonymous because he doesn't want people to know that he ran away naked. If I was telling the story, I'd make it anonymous as well. But I don't think it's Mark. It, it could be. But I think the anonymity matters. It's deliberate. We're not supposed to know who the man is. What we're supposed to know is just as Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, betrayed Christ, just how all the disciples fled and turned away from the one that said, follow me, and they'd walked with for three years in obedience and faith. They all fled. So too, this man that was so on the fringe, on the outskirts of the crowd that was interested in Jesus. He didn't even have time to put on a full pair of clothes. He just grabbed one article and then ran out because he wanted to see what was happening. And he's hiding in the trees. He's interested, but it hasn't really taken root. And the moment adversity comes, he would rather face the shame of public nakedness than the shame of being associated with Jesus Christ. That young man is every, everyone, it's anyone that is afraid of the cost of following Christ. And it just highlights the great shame of turning away from Christ. And so I close with this. I, I leave you with this. Consider what this message would have done to the early church, to that first century, where they heard about the disciples who had betrayed Christ. And this is how the church was founded. Our church leaders abandoned Jesus in his greatest time of need. That is how the church was born. Imagine if that was the story you'd heard about your pastor. Would you want to go to that church, considering his history? Imagine in your own life. Maybe you think, I've done terrible things. God knows. I know. Nobody else knows how terrible I have betrayed God, how far I've turned from him. And yet there is no way that you could go too far. Because God is a God of hope and second chances, of new life. He's calling out to you and he's saying, turn to him. And so I ask you, turn to Christ in prayer today. Say, not my will, but your will be done. And be brought into his kingdom and out of exile. Let's pray.